Hello and welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heaps, talking to you from sunny Austin, Texas. I'm here with just Ryan Hemmer. Morning, Ryan. Hey, John. How y'all doing out there in Minnesota? Oh, the great thaw has begun. (laughs) Uh, According to the Star Tribune, we only have a 15% chance of uh, this becoming a historic 50-year flood. Uh, oh. Depending on uh, you know how the seven day forecast shakes out, uh, my basement's flooded already. Um, but that was you know that was fun. <laughs> it's all cleaned up now. Well, that's good. Uh, yeah, no, it was it was good. it was awful. But it's in the past. It's <laughs> the very recent past, but the past. That's right. Uh, sun is out. Uh, and so as long as it's not raining or shorts weather, uh, I think we'll be okay. All right. Well, we'll, you'll be in our thoughts. We'll see if in about, uh, we'll see if in about three months here, uh, Texas can't light on fire and I can keep up with you in terms of, uh, (laughs) climate apocalypse disasters here. Well, there's this, there's this line I always remember from this, uh, this like, uh, Dime store novel series uh, that all took place in Minnesota, and there the characters are all sitting around a lake, the summertime, you know, somewhere in western Minnesota. And one character says to the other, "If people outside the state knew what summers in Minnesota were like, we'd have to build walls to keep people out." <laughs> That's a thing about you know living in Milwaukee. I wasn't prepared for because everybody makes such a big deal out of the six months of winter, and it is six months of winter. Um, but the other six months are perfect. They're, like, they're perfect. And like, um, everybody milks them for all they're worth. And so just, everywhere you go, there's just people enjoying life and music and lovely food. And yeah, I, it really is that the summer through fall deep, like deep into November, beginning of December is just six months of perfect weather. It's really yeah. hard to beat. Um, well, uh, Today, it's just the two of us. Um, Robin is in new baby land. Uh, Brian is, I don't even really know where Brian is. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Uh, I'm sure it, he'll listen to this at some point. So, hey, Brian. Uh, just I mean, that could be a, a Twitter game. Everyone could, uh, you know, submit their guesses on what, what Brian is. <laughs> Brian. Like the Jesuits, no one knows what Brian is up to. That's right. Um, so it's just the two of us, and uh, I've sort of been uh, working around the edges um, and also sort of uh, deep in the crevices of this argument about the problem of the supernatural for the last few years, uh, and I'm sort of wrapping it up. And so Ryan had the idea that maybe we could talk about that today. Um, I am so uh, deep in it that I don't know what's, what's forest and what's trees. Um, so I was going to let Ryan sort of. Uh, ask me questions and, and we'll see what comes out while we talk about this. Um, so Ryan, what did you have in mind? Well, you know, the funny thing is that, uh, all the, all the protagonists or at least the, the, the main cast, uh, of the, the sort of more recent, um, iteration of this, this Sir Natural debate. Well, most of them are on Twitter now. True. And uh, saying crazy things all day long, um, <laughs> not not just about this, but about lots of things. Yeah. Um, and so as a result, you you can log on to Twitter, and and almost any time of day, there'll be, um, you know, some cohort of, you know, earnest grad students or retired faculty members. Um, Relitigating and rehashing all of these these arguments um, because of one set of occasioning circumstances or another, and um, you know it follows the sort of predictable line all all, all the way through. And the other, the other sort of interesting thing that's happened um, in the last couple of years uh, for you know maybe indirect but related reasons is this uh, this integralist resurgence. Uh, or now you you know the 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 um, just sheer volume of tweeters uh, who who are self proclaimed uh, integralists 
uh, royalists, monarchists, um, is and Left I don't mean it, and they don't even mean it ironically. You know, uh, it's it's an, it's just crazy to me. <laughs> uh, and so you know, there's there's a long, uh, bloody metaphysical argument behind all of this uh, that reaches back into you know the darkest days of the late 19th and, and early and mid 20th century. Um, and you know, there are uh, like like any war there. Are, there are casualties. And so, uh, you know, there's more at stake than just like Twitter shit posts. Um, <laughs> I mean, those are at stake too, and they're important, but, uh, and so, you know, it, it just seemed that the time was right to sit down and record a conversation in which we piss everybody off, <laughs> uh, regardless of their, their allegiance. Um, and so I thought, you know, Today was as good a day as any to All do right. that. Yeah, no, and uh, it does seem to be my spiritual gift to conjure arguments that nobody wants. So, um, well, the, I mean, the other thing that happens on Twitter is that if you're, if you're arguing uh, even gently with, with one particular party, the assumption is, is that you're a partisan of the other. Yeah. And, we, you know, in an effort to disabuse people of, of that, uh, I, think it's, I think it's worth, um, you know just making everyone mad okay well hang on to your butts um well look so the the problem of the supernatural is like not something that's that uh was invented in the 1940s um let alone something that was invented in the early 2000s by lawrence feingold um or john milbank or whoever you you want um you know, it's, it's, a, it's a question that goes back into, at least into the writings of Augustine. So uh, you have obviously the, the intervention with the, the Pelagians on the one hand, where you have a, a denial of the necessity of grace um, and, an, and an assertion of the, the, sufficiency, the, the sufficiency of uh, good moral action and and more than that, even the, the practicability of good moral action uh, to merit eternal life. And then uh, what's, what's a little bit under uh, adverted to is that there was, uh, there was a group of monks who were reacting against the Pelagians and as often will happen, overreacted. And so they had uh, a strong affirmation of the necessity of grace, but they paired it sort of not unreasonably with a denial of, of the efficacy of human freedom. And Augustine uh, says, stop it, you're both wrong. Uh, he says, grace is necessary for the acts that merit eternal life. And also human freedom is real. And uh, you might have a lot of questions about that, but mostly, and this is Lonergan's take, mostly Lonergan thinks, that Augustine is, is arguing in a dogmatic mode. He's saying, no, 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 no. Uh, let me marshal the authorities to communicate to you that these are both affirmations that are part and parcel of the patrimony of Christian dogmatic and doctrinal affirmation. It is not I, but holy writ that argues against you. Is something that he says, yep. So he does offer a kind of incipiently speculative little apparatus to try to start to say how these things are true together. And this is the gratia operans, gratia cooperans distinction, uh, operative and cooperative grace. So the goodwill cooperates with God and the, the bad will is operated on by God. Um, not, this is not quite a, a theory of grace and freedom yet, but it's, it's the, uh, sort of the initial starting point. Lonergan has a nice little thing he does where he, he borrows the, the idea of a, um, uh, he, he borrows the idea of, I always forget what he calls it. Uh, he calls it a dialectical position, but in, in the natural sciences, it's called something else. Uh, I can't think of what it is off the top of my head. Anyway, he borrows this idea from the natural sciences and he adapts it and he calls it a dialectical position. The idea of the, of the dialectical position is um, on analogy with the way in which scientists will affirm that light is both a wave and a particle, both as a way of communicating what we understand about light in physics, but also of indicating what we don't yet understand, which is how it is that both of those things are true at the same time. 
uh, he says, you can do something similar in speculative theology where you have two doctrinal affirmations that you affirm they're both true. And when you affirm them in conjunction, you also indicate that which you don't understand, which is how is it that both of these things are true at the same time? And the absolute reliance of human beings on God's grace and the reality of human freedom then are these two doctrinal affirmations that on the authority of uh, Augustine's uh, retrieval, we can say, yep, both of those things are true. How are they true at the same time? We don't know yet. And then Lonergan gives this kind of long uh, retrieval of the developments on this question. Uh, you can read them in the first chapter of his dissertation, Grazia Operans, or in the Grace and Freedom articles, all of which are compiled together in uh, the collected works as volume, it's volume one, right? One. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so the, the question of merit is, is the thing that dominates this question deep into the medieval period. And it's really the question of merit that uh, Thomas Aquinas is himself grappling with. And he's able to make some headway on the problem. Um, he's able to come up with a kind of synthetic position that holds together various developments in the theory of the states of man vis-a-vis sin and grace, um, what Lonergan will call the theorem of the supernatural, a theorem of um, God's transcendence that gets sort of augmented by the theorem of the supernatural. Uh, There's a a bunch of other sort of uh, elements. And the reason Lonergan emphasizes that these are theorems is that they are... um, sort of techniques of thought, not more data. So the theorem of the supernatural is not a doctrine. It's a speculative apparatus. And it's a speculative apparatus that articulates the relation between the data. It's the sort of, it's, a, it's an articulation of the nexus between the data. Um, and we, we can maybe, cir- so we can, we can circle back to talk about how Thomas resolves that problem. Um, but but really what I want to focus on right now is the problem. Um, I have this kind of hunch that I haven't had a chance to go track down yet that Thomas's uh, way of resolving the problem uh, through a, a kind of ancient medieval hybrid metaphysics of hierarchical cooperation. And again, we'll talk about what that means maybe in a little bit. This doesn't, uh, this doesn't. This position doesn't hold for very long if it's ever really appropriated. And so, in the uh, in the Renaissance period, um, in the 16th century and stuff, you get the what is now known as the Dioxiles controversy. This controversy about uh, again about not just grace and freedom, but about sort of divine action and human freedom. Uh, and you get sort of two camps, uh, and they split along Dominican and Jesuit lines for the most part. And the and really, for my hunch is that what what happens is that Thomas's ancient medieval metaphysical solution uh, gets flattened on the felt of billiards of the sort of nascent billiards table physics of um, the Renaissance period, and so you have a new notion of causality, um, and you have a new notion of causation or causality. You have a new notion of um, agency that comes with that. And as a result, the solution that Thomas had, if it was ever appropriated at all, not only does it flatten, it shatters. I mean, it really just falls apart. It can't work anymore. And so the, 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 the various controversies of the Dioxiles, um debate ultimately are not resolved. Speculatively, they're resolved politically. The Pope says, knock it off, move on. Uh, we're not going to condemn anybody, but just shut up about it for a while. And people do, for the most part. Um, and then, the, but the, you know, the problem is still a problem. People still have questions. And so it rolls around again at the end of the 19th and into the beginning of the 20th century. Um, you have Maurice Blondel's dissertation, L'Action. is a big intervention in this set of questions. You have, um, but you have something that start, start to happen here that's interesting as well. Which is, Blondell sees that this question of the relationship between human agency and divine agency is of real import 
or the tumult that Catholic political thought is going through in France at the time. So you have a kind of uh, right-wing old guard monarchist movement um, that is hitching its wagon to the Action Francaise, which is uh, headed up by this positivist agnostic guy, Charles Morat. And um, Blundell, Blundell thinks that there's a, there's a metaphysic underneath the justification of cooperating with these, with these right-wing monarchists. Um, and it's, a, it's what sort of now is, in a kind of tired way, talked about as the sort of two-tier metaphysics, right? Um, where, uh, as, as at the edge of Solomon's sword, you take grace and uh, nature, or you take the supernatural and the natural, and you slice the natural off, and you give it to the state, and you slice the supernatural off, and you give it to the church. Uh, and, and, and because they're hierarchically related, the state then is in theory subordinated to the church, which is of course um, what the the republic the 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 secularist republicans uh, want to you know or want to maintain is is the uh, the removal of that subordination in France. So there's an obvious conflict there, but then you also have the advent of uh, a movement of social Catholicism, which is not quite socialist Catholicism, but it's also not not socialist Catholicism. And Blondell sees in this evidence of a sort of more uh, rich and multifaceted view of cooperation of humans with God, where he calls it um, dub, uh, uh, an account of grace that is, that is a, one of double afferents. So it's a grace that is still a heteronymous to human agency, but it doesn't just come from above through the institutions of the church, but it comes sort of out of and through human action per se. Um, now, uh, Blondell's case is interesting because Blondell's project is one of trying to use the method of modern philosophy, an immanentizing method, to show that uh, giving a complete account of reality in purely imminent terms is actually impossible. And so philosophy has to come to a kind of negative conclusion uh, that by its own method, it's, methods, it can't answer its own questions. Uh, and so when Blundell talks about the supernatural in a philosophical idiom, he really means all at extra agency, all, all divine agency, both creative, conserving, uh, applying, redemptive, the whole nine. Um, and one of the things that happens to Blundell rather endlessly is his philosophical work is, is misread sort of by everyone, but in particular by theologians. Uh, theologians can't help, and this still happens, they can't help but read Blondell's uh, philosophical work where he's operating with these very tight methodological constraints. And he writes at length about them. I mean, he writes about them in L'Action. He writes them about them in the Letter on Apologetics. He writes about them uh, in History and Dogma. I mean, and these are all translated in English. You can go get them and read them. Uh, but, and so, but what happens is theologians can't help but read Supernatural and just one-to-one take it as a synonym for grace. Uh, and so I, ha- I haven't gone and dug and looked at these yet, but I have a- on good authority that, you know, when you go and you look at the letters between Blondell and de Lubac, say, Blondell's always needling de Lubac to be more careful about the methodological bounds between philosophy and theology. Um, but inevit- inevitably what happens is Blondell has taken sort of his inspiration for a number of figures, but particularly de Lubac, to give an account of the supernatural, which is um, r- radically rejecting this sort of two-tiered, separability of nature and grace. Um, and that comes with, it a set, comes with it a set of political implications about the relationship between church and state, between um, social movements in the state. I mean, it comes with a whole bunch of stuff. Um, this debate uh, ultimately is, um, is uh, concluded by political means rather than theological ones, because uh, de Lubac gets in this long argument with Garrigou Lagrange. Um, there's a sort of side debate about theological method that happens in the various Jesuit and Dominican journals as well. Aidan Nicholas has a good article about that if you want to go dig it up. Um, I think it's called Thomism and the Nouvelle Theologie. But that gets ultimately gets squashed politically as well. Um, 
Delubach is uh, silenced. He gets, there's a sort of not too subtle condemnation of his position in Humanity Generous. Uh, and, you know, a war breaks out. So that'll put the kibosh on your uh, speculative enterprises. Not always, but, but often. And, but what's interesting is that, so then Vatican II rolls around and the sort of broadly Delubachian position about the, um, the necessity of grace uh, for human nature, qua nature, um, the, the sort of integral need for grace, um, the natural desire for grace, the natural desire for the supernatural. These are all ways this gets talked about. Um, by the time Vatican II rolls around, particularly because of the role of um, de Lubach and his uh, and sort of his fellow travelers, his Pariti and stuff, um, gets rehabilitated, and uh, there's a there's a sense that. <sighs> And I never know how much credence to give to this because you'd have to do a lot of digging. But, but there's a sense that that, that kind of Delubachian account of the sort of universality of the desire for grace. And so in a way, sort of the, desi- the, the operativity of grace in, in, um, in all sectors of human living becomes, a lot of people think, the sort of de facto position of Catholic theology for five decades, um, and still is, I think, a, a, particularly a lot of neo-scholastic, or, or as I call them, neo-neo-scholastic Thomas thing. Um, all right, so that, so that sort of is, brings us up more or less to the contemporary period. In the early 2000s, you start to see, right, right around the turn of the century, um, you start to see among Thomists, a renewal of debate about this question of natural desire for God or to see God or to know God or whatever. Um, and it, at first it's a kind of exegetical interpretive debate about Thomas. And uh, Lawrence Feingold um, publishes this just enormous tome uh, on the natural desire and Aquinas and his commentators. He has a kind of dialectical engagement with the Lubach at the back of it. And the, um, the, the neo-neo-scholastic crowd um, really grabs hold of this. Uh, they have a symposium about it where they, they laud this book. There's a, uh, an, an edition of Nova Vedra devoted to it. Uh, Stephen A. Long, Reinhard Hutter, uh, a couple other people write um, appreciative articles about it and sort of on the basis of its research. Um, really trying to, sh- to show that the, the, the commentatorial affirmation of pure nature is um, a kind of integral and important idea in the high medieval Thomas achievement. And, um, and there's an effort to do some rehabilitation of Garrigou Lagrange, who had fallen into some disrepute in wider theological circles. Um, I had a very accomplished uh, Anglophone theologian tell me that, that, that he, he thought that some of, some of what's going on here is, um, is a, a need among some Dominican and Dominican sympathetic theologians to be able to find heroes from the last century, um, <laughs> which, you know, fair enough. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, as someone who is, uh, often reaching for the star of Bernard Lonergan, um, if, if I, uh, if I had different, if I had different affiliations than having been educated by a bunch of Jesuits and Jesuit educated folks, maybe I, I too would need that. You'd, you'd think Congar would, would, uh, would suffice though, but, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> but again, my prejudices have already been stated. So, um, well, I mean for the Dominican. No, no, I, yeah, quite so. But uh, the, the limits of uh, my empathic imagination are on the table. Okay. All right. So, but it's not just neo-neoscholastic Thomas who are taking this up. Early in the 90s, you have this kind of outlier of uh, John Milbank's Theology and Social Theory as a whole chapter that looks at Blondel, Balthazar, de Lubach 
on the question of the supernatural specifically to address a political question or, or a political theological question, which is, um, look, if we're going to have a Christian socialism, which is what Milbank wanted, and I think probably still wants in some sense, but if we're going to have Christian socialism, the, the substance of this Christian socialism, Milbank thinks, can't be just um, whatever the Marxist or neo-Marxist or whatever um, social theorists tell us it has to be. Because then it's not Christian socialism, right? Then it's not um, radically orthodox or whatever. And, um, and so Mil- Milbank also thinks he makes explicit what is often sort of implicit in the 1940s debate about the surnatural and, it's, and, and this kind of stuff. Um, and, and what, and what Blond- Blondell's the right figure to go to. Um, he goes to Blondell because he thinks part of what's going on in the uh, tendency to subordinate Catholic political theology to whatever the, uh, you know, de rigueur social theorists, socialist social theorists say, um, is an account of the of the supernatural, an account of, and, and again, Milbank mostly makes the mistake that de Lubach makes of thinking that supernatural means grace um, in a kind of simple way in Blundell. Um, that in fact, grace is so universal um, that grace is at work everywhere, including among this, the secular social theorists. And so whatever they tell us in good faith about um, the politics we ought to have, well, then we're just going to go with that. And, and that'll, that'll be what Christian politics are. Um, and Milbank thinks, no, we can't do that. And so uh, he gives a kind of um, retri- a critical retrieval of Blondell. He gives a kind of critical and retrieval of Balthazar and de Lubach more briefly in that chapter. Um, and, there's, and he's not alone also. So, so he writes his, his little tiny book, um, The Suspended Middle, which is now in its second edition, um, in the early 2000s as well. And he, he sort of doubles down on his, um, his own radicalizing, re, somewhat revisionist account of de Lubach, um, where he's going to take de Lubach's thesis and, uh, in Surnaturel and he's going to say, eh, and all that later stuff where he qualifies what he has to say in Surnaturel, that was capitulation to political pressure. The, the real position is, is that early position. And it generates what he calls, and he's not as focused on the political in that book, but he, he, he says what it generates is a non-ontology. It's, it's an account of being as gift, um, right, as gratia, as, as gratuitous, uh, that doesn't allow there to be a simple distinction between philosophy and theology, but also doesn't collapse the distinction between philosophy and theology. Um, and, you know, there's sort of reasons in the background in terms of pl- uh, a kind of Platonist metaphysical imagination for why he would take that view, but we can maybe climb down that rabbit hole later. Um, eventually, Stephen A. Long will write a book called Natura Pura, uh, where he tries to distill somewhat Feingold's arguments and he, uh, he really, what he, he distills them down to is what nature, not, what pure nature, what the doctrine or what the sort of theological doctrine or the hypothesis or something of pure nature allows us to do is to um, affirm and articulate the theonomicity, the godlodness of the natural order in precision from any kind of dogmatic or doctrinal claim. And so that we can have, on the basis of the natural law, on the basis of a sort of broadly theistic account of reality, um, I mean, and broadly I mean as broad as Thomism and, and no more. Uh, <laughs> so um, on that basis then, because it is uh, in principle knowable by our natural cognitive powers, it is also public. And because it is public, you can legislate on the basis of it. And in fact, because you can know it with certitude that it's the case, right? Because philosophically demonstrable in his view, um, because you can get it sort of, uh, you can sort of uh, 
what's the way he speaks about it? You, you, can, you can define it in precision from grace, right? You can sort of work it out in its own terms and it's sort of self-standing. Um, the only really viable politics are a theocratic one where the notion of God at work is a sort of basically Thomist theology and the, nat- and the account of morality is basically Thomist natural law account of morality. Um, and in the footnotes, if you go and you dig in, you find that his model for this, uh, or at least his analog for this, is the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, that you should laugh at that. That's um, wow. sort of insane. Um, I mean, it's look, it's it's not insane in the sense that it's uh, it's a sort of reasonable application of his basic ideas. Um, but as as D. Stephen Long, our old teacher, said, um, pretty quickly you realize that this is this is a a work of motivated reasoning to justify why Catholics should rule. Um, now, what, that doesn't decide whether it's right or wrong. Um, I think it's wrong. But, but, but that it's motivated reasoning uh, should make you suspicious but doesn't decide the matter. So fair enough. Okay, so that was a kind of long rehearsal of this thing. It's got deep roots. It's taken various different forms of, of um, various different manifestations over the years. And I noticed something about this. In the discussion, in the 1940s, but also in the more contemporary ang- uh, Anglophone controversy, there is a tendency to think as though, and in fact, all, almost all of the literature uh, on, on the topic in the last 20 years ha- has this tendency, which is, these cultural and political and social questions, they are to be resolved at the level of metaphysics. That if you work out the metaphysics correctly, then you will have the sound basis from which to work out the political, cultural, and social problems. Or, or as the case may be, you'll have your, your philosoph- philosophical justification for maintaining the politics you you already had when you came to the problem. Yeah. Sure. Um, and what's interesting is that in, in so much of the literature, what you have, uh, Stephen A. Long's footnotes being accepted, um, you have a kind of acknowledgement of these social and cultural and political and sometimes economic problems. And then, well, then we need to get down to doing the metaphysics of nature and grace or natural and the supernatural. And then, like, they don't return to them. <laughs> like, they, uh, it's like, well, it's an, and then just obviously um, what you would do is you would implement all of my preferred policies. Uh, like it, it's a little bit, um, the implication is there that if you work out these metaphysics at length, you'll be able to resolve these other questions. Um, but very rarely people turn around and go do that. And so I came to the conclusion that part of the problem with the problem of the supernatural is that it's not one problem, it's two problems. And that the problems are irreducible to one another. But on the other hand, they're also sort of nested. Um, they are, they're inextricable from one another. So, so they're, they're inextricably related, but also irreducible to one another. Um, and part of the reason that the contemporary debate is being had largely in the same terms uh, as the debate in the 1940s, and sometimes it's just on the basis of exegesis of the text from the 40s. Um, part of the reason we're just spinning our wheels again on this problem is because we're not recognizing that it's, it's two problems, not one. Uh, and so we keep fighting about the metaphysics, uh, which I think are of themselves mostly badly conceived, um, and then assuming that, like, well, then, and, and then you just deduce what your politics should be from that. Uh, and that seems, ironically, metaphysically naive. Um, but maybe I'll, I'll stop there because I've been at it a long time. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the rehearsal of the history, I think, is, is actually fairly helpful. I mean, we, you know, we were going through college and graduate school when, you know, there was a little more... Um, bite a little more urgency uh, to these questions in theology. Ironically, even as there wasn't the kind of um, 
high stakes social imagination in the wider context like there is now. Um, so if, if, if anything, it's, it seems like the, that not now is the sort of social moment for the relitigation of these problems. It, it was sort of, um, it, yeah, it, it was, it was, it seemed like a, a, a bit of an academic's indulgence for Milbank yeah. to call himself a Christian socialist at the time. Right. Um, and you know, and now obviously that's, um, that's really changed. And that I think is all to the good, in fact. But, you know, um, it was a way, it was a sort of way of, of um, litmus testing one's theological allegiances and um, w- whatever side one gave one's allegiance to was, was a kind of indication of a, a whole sort of network of other positions, uh, both political and philosophical and theological, that one could assume uh, that that you had, um, and so I, th- I think it had a kind of heuristic function um, to to identify oneself, um, even on matters that are are at best tangentially related to to these issues. Um, but at the same time, uh, if if your if your hunch is correct, um, that uh, there are actually two problems to this problem, um, and that adequate resolution to the metaphysical problem, which is almost always the way that this is cashed out in terms of actual arguments, that resolution to that problem isn't going to, uh, in and of itself, solve the other one for you. Uh, seems to me a a really important point to get some clarity on. Uh, so I, I guess uh, for for purposes of kind of complexifying the uh, the partisan wrangling around this issue, but also maybe uh, to actually make some headway on a real speculative problem, uh, what are the two problems as you see them and what is the relationship between the one and the other? Yeah. Okay, so... Um... I think part of what you have to do is drill way down. Um, so, so I've, I've taken to calling these the medieval and the modern problems of the supernatural. And the medieval problem is primarily a metaphysical problem. And the, the modern problem is a, a hermeneutical problem. Uh, the medieval problem is uh, synchronic. It calls out for a synchronic solution, a theory. Um, and the modern problem, the modern hermeneutical problem, calls it, it, it's, uh, it calls out for a diachronic solution, a sort of ongoing uh, solution, one that endures through time. Uh, and I'll say more about what that means in a minute. Now, the the medieval problem is. It, it's interesting that the medieval problem in the forties and con, in the contemporary scene really ends up being. Uh, a weird hybrid because because there's this effort to cram the two problems into a single uh, issue you have this sort of odd claim uh so so you get this fight about the natural desire to know god or the natural desire to see god or the natural desire for the supernatural and like which terms you use actually matters for the theory um or the natural desire for grace because not all those words mean the same thing um but which, whichever way you hash that out, part of what you have there is, insofar as what you're talking about is something natural, which is to say keyed to nature as a metaphysical category, um, that, in, that implies uh, this kind of synchronic metaphysical analysis, right? Reduction to principles. And, um, and so the, the neo-neoscholastics make a big deal out of, well, look, Natures are uh, specified by powers, are specified by operations, are specified by their objects. And the objects are the ends, the aims of the operations, of the powers, and so of the nature. Um, and so if you are going to have uh, a supernatural, if, if what we are by our nature is something that desires to, in whatever way, operate supernatural as, a, as our object, um, well, you've you've got a kind of incoherence there, um, at least at the level of, syn- of that kind of synchronic analysis. However, nature is being modified to be an adjective in, in that way of speaking, so it's a natural desire for the supernatural. 
And desire uh, indicates temporality, diachronicity, um, dynamic movement, change, development, etc. And so the, the reaction is, well, no, no, part of what we're dealing with here is the elan of the human spirit. We're dealing with um, the sort of uh, in via character of human being. And, uh, and this is where Neoplatonism becomes a really attractive uh, metaphysical scheme, right? Because you can talk about um, both the, the exitus of human being as gift from God, but you, uh, but you can also talk about the reditus, the return is itself a gift. And you can say, look, really, there's just one gift. Um, which does raise the question of like, well, then uh, why is everything not grace? To which some in the, in the, in the argument will say, exactly. Um, and, you know, and they've all read Diary of a Country Priest, and so they can quote the last line of it for you <laughs> as though that's a fucking argument. Um, and, uh, and so you end up with sort of two problems. Um, one of the problems you end up with on uh, the on the sort of neo-scholastic side is a tendency to think of natures um, in the sort of ancient mode of well, look, the nature has just sort of always existed, um, and it is what it is when it is. And in fact, the reason you need the nature to stay the same all the time is because if you don't have a substantial nature that's fixed, um. And, he, and you don't have that as a kind of uh, core, then you can't give an account of change at all. Uh, Th- Thomas Joseph White explicitly makes this argument in an article called The Pure Nature of Christology, where he sort of briefly engages pretty charitably with Nietzsche and Foucault um, about historicity. And he says, yeah, but the reason you need like a, a human nature in its precision is because to, a t- to talk about those changes, qua changes, there has to be something that, that's doing the changing. Um, and, and, and what you, that is, is the nature of, of human beings um, that's, that's undergoing the change. So, um, so there's sort of one element on that side. Uh, and, and what you have trouble with then is like, well, if the nature is not just the sort of thin heuristic thing, um, but you can actually like use a, a, a classical ideal of science to deduce all kinds of things about what is natural to it. Um, then it seems like, yeah, that you can give like a, a theory of the states of human nature and have a quasi theory of history. Um, those things are still all really accidental to um, human being, uh, and, and you end up. I mean, you end up with a kind of essentialism, right, where you think of operations not as something above and beyond essence, but operation as something that sort of deductively follows from essence. Um, so you got some metaphysical problems there in terms of dealing, really dealing with change as a as a reality, um, and never mind the issues of sort of um, continuing to act as though the the classical ancient ideal of science is adequate in a modern realm. I mean, that's a whole other discussion. Well, and it would seem that 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 um, right, you're gonna you're actually gonna undercut the the insight that that he's putting forward because. Um, if if the changes are accidental, um, then they procedurally need to be bracketed on yep. one metaphysical analysis. And so you still can't take change, history, time, the diachronic as as data points for metaphysical analysis. They still are that which one has to prescind from in order to do metaphysical analysis. You can't actually have a theory of history. On exactly. That. Yeah. Um, okay, all you're doing always is reducing theory to it. So that's a problem on that side. On the other side, you have the problem of um, if, if, if all is gift, you do have the problem of why is everything not grace? So that's, like, that's one fairly obvious issue. Um, but the other issue you have is that is to put forward paradox as though it's an answer. Um, and, and, and I'm convinced enough by Lonergan that I think that the function of paradox is to indicate what you don't know yet. A paradox is, an, is, a, is a technique for asking questions, not answering them. Um, and so I often find in, it's often a kind of, it, uh, with apologies to Robin, it's a characteristic of the more Anglo-Catholic approach. Um, people associated with, uh, with radical orthodoxy, but others too, um, to make that appeal to gift as though that answers the question, when in fact what it does is it... Um, it at best restates the question. 
Um, and probably what it does, insofar as it's put forward in a sort of mood or mode that is as though you're answering the question, um, really what it does is it shuts the question down. Um, and one of the things that, that Lonergan identifies in the medieval period is that with the advent of the theorem of the supernatural, of a distinction between entitatively disproportioned orders. So um, reason is the highest thing in nature, Propositinus says, uh, and faith is above reason. Um, or you have the love of the supernatural love of Caritas, um, and that is disproportionate to the natural love of God. You, you get a distinction within the order of the universe between these two orders that are disproportionate to each other. Um, and what that distinction allows, Lonergan has a great line about this. He says, it, it doesn't make it, uh, it doesn't make it as though you can now separate out this region over here. This is something Milbank complains about in theology and social theory, right? There's the sphere over here. That's the natural. And there's the sphere over here. That's the supernatural, right? That's sort of the implication of the neo neoscholastic account, um, is that you have a realm which is, uh, proportionate to the powers of the state which can be governed adequately by the state in sort of in the terms of its theonomicity. Um, and then, and then you have the church for all the other revealed stuff. Um, no, you have one cosmic order, um, which in which progress, decline and redemption are all operative differentials. Um, but part of what the theorem of supernatural lets you do is it lets you distinguish as a matter of thought, a line of reference, called the supernatural and another line of reference called the natural. And so it organizes and intelligently relates the concrete data. So again, it doesn't add anything um, in terms of data, but it, it gives you an account of the nexus among the data so that you can, I don't know, ask about them and explain them. Uh, and, and so part of what, what Thomas is able to do with that is he's able to ask the question, right? He doesn't just say, oh, well, you know, it's all, it's all a kind of, gratuitous emanation of uh, the, 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 uh, the heights of divine being or something. Um, and it, it also lets you, what it lets you do is use analogy. And this is where the doctrine of analogy, the, the sort of um, technique of analogy becomes really important, is you can identify, okay, the theorem of the supernatural says there's going to be some stuff that's going to be proportionate to my sort of level of being, and there's going to be some stuff that's disproportionate. Well, if, if what I want to know about is the disproportionate stuff, which is to say, if what I want to do is theology, okay, I know I have some determinations about this, some revealed data, some stuff I've been able to infer from um, the effects of, this, of, of the transcendent. But because God is God and I'm not, I'm never going to be able to just like, and there's no data on God, and I'm reliant on data for understanding. Um, I'm never going to be able to just like comprehend God, but I can come to some adequate but incomplete knowledge of God. And how am I going to do that? Well, I can make analogies. So I can, um, I can come to understand things that are proportionate, like freedom and agency and causation. Um, and then I can say, okay, in every theological problem, because theological problems are about the relationship of God to humanity, right? That's the root problem here is how does God's agency relate to human agency? I can, uh, I can address in the dialectical position of these two doctrines, the human element directly with what I understand through philosophy, which is through, say, through my engagement with the natural. And I can derive from that analogies to try and make some headway, some speculative advance on um, the divine element. So that'll never be total, never be complete, never be comprehensive. Um, and so, so my beef with both sides in this whole thing is I find that the, the Neo-Delubachians, especially Milbank, but others too, um, tend to not ask the question by an appeal to gift. Um, I find it just occludes the, the whole thing. But on the other hand, I find that the, with the neo-scholastics, what you have is a kind of essentialism or conceptualism at work where um, they tend to think of natures as being prior to the order of the cosmos. Um, and I think you have real problems. I mean, you have theological problems. Like, how is it that you have, a, a, you have divine simplicity with a God who's knowing and willing an aggregate of natures that are then brought into a unity? 
Um, it seems to me God would have to will the unity first um, on the basis of divine simplicity, uh, which is to say the order of the cosmos from which natures and their unfolding emerge. And that would include the various states of human nature, the human nature in its, in its integrity, human nature in its fallen state, human nature in its redemption, human nature in its culmination, and its return to God. Um, so anyway, that's a, a little bit of a long-winded way of saying like, um, I, I find both sides of the debate um, muddled in different ways. And in part, I think that they're muddled because the, the contemporary problem, especially framed in terms of the natural desire to know God, um, it has a kind of uh, confused compound of elements, right? It's trying to ask both questions at the same time um, in a way that's undifferentiated. And when you do that, you're just going to make a mess. And that's what you have. You know, you go, you go read the literature and it's a mess. It's an intractable mess. A swirling vortex of vortices, I think is what I say in, in something <laughs> I wrote recently. Though it's, it seems to me, uh, you know, when, when we were talking about um, the sort of Augustinian origins of this question and the, um, the various ways in which uh, that, that question is received in the 12th and 13th century, um, you know, one of, the, one of the problems that you have there is that a lack of differentiation um, leads you to misidentify what things um, you just haven't really understood yet and what things in their own terms um, are not understandable. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is, this is the, the, the problem of freedom and merit is that um, for a long time, it seems like freedom, like grace, is somehow a mystery whose apex is hidden in the life of God that uh, you could try to know as much as you want to know about human freedom, but ultimately that freedom is um, disproportionate and mysterious and so uh, knowable only deficiency and only finally in the beatific vision. Um, and that's just not true, as it turns out. Yep. Uh, human, human freedom isn't a, a sort of corollary difficulty that are that arises as an extension of of the supernaturality of grace uh it's like part of what it would mean to know yourself um and so it's still a problem it's still a thing that you need to understand and it's really difficult to give an account of but it's but that difficulty is not yeah that difficulty does not owe to its disproportion to human understanding no, I think I think that's right, and um, and, and so and so part of what you get is, uh, you know, my, for my money, um, you know, the, the medieval question is really one about uh, how does God make a difference in human beings and human action, and spe- specifically the specific problem is free human action. How does God make right. a difference in free human action? Um, and and maybe unsurprisingly, but it, it certainly was eye opening to me. Then in Thomas's solution, the difference that God makes is a radical ontological difference, which is to say God makes human freedom to be at all. Um, and so, so for Thomas, God's at extra agency vis-a-vis human freedom is fundamentally liberative. And I mean I, with sort of the underlined fundamental, which is to say there's no freedom at all. There's not even anything to, to be unfree without God's at extra agency. Um, and so, uh, and so the, the, the problem of, well, how do you get God's agency and human agency to sort of, how do you get them to, to, to work together or something, um, is actually um, is based on a, a misconstrual of what freedom is. Right. And uh, Lonergan has a great line about, uh, and it's, it's rooted in the ingenious assumption that everyone already knows what causation means. Um, and so Lonergan spends page after page uh, in his theory, of, Thomas's theory of operation, like, just explaining what Thomas's theory of causation is because free human agency is a species of causation. And if you, uh, if you've messed up, if you have a a bad assumption about what causation is, you're going to muck the whole thing up. Um, so I really do think like a lot of this, the difficulty here is, um, bracketing the theological and theopolitical consequences and just like going and doing good philosophy for a while. Um, and really getting a handle on the nitty gritty details 
even someone like Stephen A. Long, who really prides himself on having this sort of deep handle, and he talks about it endlessly, about his sort of handle on the Thomas Scientia and how you have to be able to hold all these ideas. He deals with these things so superficially. Um, he talks about God's creative agency in making the universe as, uh, as being accidentally predicated of God. <laughs> like he's got a long footnote about how it's quote-unquote accidentally predicated of God. Um, and I don't know if, if my, our listeners are as devoted <laughs> classical theists as I am, but like the idea that anything is accidentally predicated of God is insane. Um, but because he hasn't, because he hasn't done the work to look at Thomas's augmentation of Aristotle's theory of causation, which is to say that he works it out in terms of, um, modes of predication that ca- that causation is predicated of God, uh, on the basis of the existence of the effect, not on the basis of something in God. Yep. Um, he screws it up. All right. So you have the same problem with freedom. That when you really dig down into what, and I've got a long thing I've written on this too. Um, when you dig down into what it means to say that the will is a, is a, a rational appetite, well, that raises a question, which is, what is rationality? Um, and, and, and too often what people assume is that what rationality is, is what you learn in like a basic course in deductive logic. But the problem with that is what you learn in that class is like a bunch of rules. Rules a computer yep. can, can apply. Uh, and so while it's intelligible, it's not intelligent. And so unless you have an account of rationality as not just an intelligible, but an intelligent process, um, and unless you have a way of talking about the generation of concepts from that intelligent process, right? So it's not just the application of rules to concepts, but also you have account of the genesis of concepts. Um, unless you have an account of all those things, you're still not ready to talk about the will. And so then if you talk about the will in terms of being a rational appetite, you have to deal with the fact that, um, well, okay, in what way is it rational? How is that rationality different from the rationality of knowledge? So how does appetite modify the rationality? I mean, this is one of the big problems with the natural desire to know God is folks like Stephen A. Long complain that, well, look, if you have a natural desire for the supernatural, um, but the supernatural is disproportionate to our cognitive powers, then your desire to know God has to have a different formal object. or Sorry, it can, it can only have God as a material object. It can't have God as a formal object. But this is a stupid objection. I mean, it's literally a stupid objection because if you desire to know something and that thing is already the formal object of your desire, you already know it. Yep. Because no, knowledge is the apprehension of form. And so if I have to know God before I can desire to know God, what are we even talking about? And so that God as creator of the universe is the material, that God is only the material object in his essence. And the formal object is God as the creator of the universe. Well, of course, that's how all desiring to know works. But again, if you haven't dug down and worked out how rationality works, how it's an intelligent process, all that stuff, you're going to muck the whole thing up. Go ahead. Well, so this is this is important because I th- I think it it highlights the fact um, that the incoherence part of the incoherence is uh, of this debate both uh, its twentieth century and twenty first century forms is a is a metaphysical one that ni- neither uh, neither party has really uh, adequately done the metaphysical work of really trying to understand both the originating context of the question and um, the formal way in which a solution was really reached in Thomas. I'll, I'll make an exception to that. I think Reinhard Hütter maybe has. Okay. Uh, he's got some nice long articles where I, his idiom's a little, not one I'm super familiar with, um, but he, I think, he's got a long article um, on relevant texts in the Summa Contra Gentiles and stuff where, um, where I think it, it's hard to tell what direction he wants to take the implications, but I think, I think he's done the work. And, and Sean Larson has a really good, if you want to read a good article about this, sorry, I cut you off. I'll let you get back to your no, point. But you're gonna, um, if you're going to, uh, you know, if you're going to give press to Sean's work, I'm, I'm happy to be, sit silently through it. No, he's got a, he's got a modern theology article that uh, I don't think it's enough praise. He does a critical engagement with Milbank and Hooter on this topic. 
He's fairly affirmative hooter, uh, I, th- I think, I think for good reason. Um, and he's hard on Milbank, and he uses Walter Mignolo's work uh, to indicate the way in which uh, Milbank's sort of uh, yen for the for certain Renaissance figures is really uh, complicit with a certain colonial way of identifying civilization and Christianity. Um, it's, it's a terrific article. I mean, it's really, really good. So, so I feel good that in, in giving some praise to Hooter uh, on the back, especially of, of Sean's appraisal as well. So anyway, but you were making a point. Well, th- I mean, I think that's actually uh, germane to the point. Um, because really what your claim, though, is, is that um, even a bulletproof metaphysical solution to the problem of grace and freedom um, is not going to, in and of itself, secure for you the further question about uh, social and political and cultural ra- arrangements, the relation between church and state, etc. And so, um, there's a tendency among theologians and philosophers to say that any problem that um, happens to be animating for a particular age has as its um, its cause some philosophical problem, and so as its solution, uh, some philosophical doctrine, or theological, if that's more your, your jam. But what, but what your claim really is, is that um, the metaphysical solution to this metaphysical problem, while important and relevant and um, wide-ranging in implication, is not, even, a, even as perfectly executed, going to secure for you uh, a, a sort of knockdown, drag-out, um, bulletproof solution to human social arrangements and human and, human social orders. And our, so there's our that further question. Yeah, right. And so, and our and our listeners may not believe me when I say this, but I, I can actually state this part succinctly. Um, if the medieval question is about how is God operating in human freedom. The modern problem is, what is God doing in free human action? Um, and, an, and an answer to that metaphysical medieval question about how does it work, a theory of the concursus between the divine and the human, um, can't tell you what God is doing. Um, that is a hermeneutical question. Um, you have to discern what the divine intention is in God's work in and through human action. Um, and, the, the, and the thing is, is that because human actions also are constituted by the, the meanings uh, that they intend. So, so here you might think of um, arson is a human action defined by its intention, right? Um, that, that, the, that starting a fire uh, is different. It, just starting a fire per se is different from arson. Why? Because there's an intention, there's a, a, a mens rea, right, um, element to arson that formally constitutes what arson is. Um, and so you have to both understand human actions as constituted by human understandings and meanings in order to even have the data to address the question, what is God doing in free human action? Because you have to know what the human actions are, um, and if you do the, if you just do the metaphysics again, all you have is how, right? You have a, a, a synchronic, theoretical, metaphysical account of how it is that God acts in human actions, but you don't know what God's up to, and for that you need a hermeneutics, um, and because human actions are not uh, are not sort of um, merely an aggregate. But, but rather they coalesce into the, the activities that pertain to communities that share meanings and values. Um, the hermeneutics has to also has to be able to deal not just with the actions of individual persons, but of societies, cultures, economies. Um, you, you, need a, uh, you need a hermeneutics that can deal at that level as well. And so you need, you need a sort of historically minded or culturally minded hermeneutics. Um, because if you again, if you if you just do the metaphysics, all you're doing is restating the possibility of the modern problem. You're not actually asking it. Well, that seems like as as good a place as any to uh, put a bookmark in the in this novel. And, yeah. Uh, 
you know, well, we we can come back to this. <laughs> we can. Maybe we'll talk about the uh, the the philosophical ambiguities of being another time, because uh, I think that this has a kind of knock on effect for um, philosophical ontologies. But that but that'll be uh, work for another day. Yeah. Um, well, hey, if I said something to piss you off and you want to tell me about it on the on the twitters, you can find us uh, at Systematic Pod on Twitter. If uh, that's too public a venue and you'd like to give me a, an earful in a more private setting, you can send us an email, systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you think this was terrific and you'd like to hear more of it and you want to support us materially, you can become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash systematically. Your, uh, your donations would help cover some of our um, hosting expenses and uh, the subscription to the video conferencing software we use. Um, we're not, we're not quite, uh, in the black yet, but we're getting there. So thank you to those of you who are supporting the show. Um, if you don't mind, if you have a second, if you're enjoying this or, um, or if you hate it, but preferably if you enjoy it, can you go to whatever podcast system you use and give us a a rating and a review? Uh, if you haven't yet, please subscribe. That'd be great too. We'd love to be uh, in your ear every week. Our intro and outro music, uh, that the mysterious Brian Baychick tacks on for us is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. Uh, I think that's all the business. We'll look forward to talking to you next week. And remember, be intelligent. <laughs>